session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Jalakwin. I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. The book of the week... For this week that I'll talk about on probably next Wednesday's show, might have a guest on Monday, is The Shame Machine by Kathy O'Neill. The Shame Machine, Who Profits in the New Age of Humiliation? Um, just saw this book, I think a day or two ago, I think it came out last week, and sounded very interesting, and I'm interested to read it and share it with you next week. The Shame Machine by Kathy O'Neill. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is The Zen of Therapy by Mark Epstein. The Zen of Therapy, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness in Life. And I've read a few of his books, Dr. Epstein. One of them was called The Trauma of Everyday Life. And I really like the way he writes, the way he thinks. And so when I saw he had a new book, I decided to check it out. And so in this book, he talks about how he he's a Buddhist himself and for decades now has practiced Buddhism and um, meditation and and the principles of Buddhism in his own life. And he at times talks about how he would suggest meditation to clients that had come up, but he was wondering how much his Buddhist thinking and beliefs impacted or would show in his therapy. And so it's an interesting project he undertook. I think this, the sessions were mostly in, in 20. 18 and 2019, if I'm not mistaken, or 2019 completely, that's right. Um, he basically gives a summary of many sessions. Sometimes you'll see a, the same client a few times. Often you'll only have one session with the client that he describes, but he would take notes after the session if he felt like he somehow felt some Buddhist principle or some type of um, concept might have been relevant in what he talked about with the client. Sometimes he explicitly would talk about the Buddhist concept as a Buddhist concept. Sometimes he would just talk about something and would recognize that it was related to some type of a teaching or understanding he had from, from those Buddhist beliefs. And so as a therapist myself, I found that part intriguing. He would share the content. Sometimes it would be the dialogue itself. It always includes some of the dialogue, but then some thoughts within it. And then at the end, he would share kind of like his recapitulation of what happened, not just a recap of what happened, but also some insights into how it was relevant, as I was mentioning, to some type of Buddhist understanding or teaching, but also why he said this and not that. Or he would sometimes say, uh, traditional therapists or psychoanalytic therapy might have done this. However, I took this approach. And so for me, that was very interesting. As a therapist myself, therapy really is a, an art. And as an art, it's something that you study and you practice. But also, 
to me, it's an art in the sense that each individual therapist finds their own way of doing therapy. So there will be general themes and principles, and people might even have a certain school of thought that informs how they practice, but there is always at the end some level of the artist that shines through. And I actually think that's one of the things I had to learn as a therapist. Early on, you're learning different techniques, different basics about how to conduct a session, different schools of thought, cognitive behavioral therapy, different psychodynamic approaches, emotional-focused therapy, whatever the theory or type of therapy might be. Uh, but eventually you learn to listen to the voice within yourself that is guiding you throughout the sessions. And so it doesn't mean it's just coming from nowhere. It's going to be an accumulation of what you've experienced and what you've learned. But more and more you learn to trust that voice. So um, I think both the voice has to be developed, but also you learn to listen to it more and to trust it. And so I remember early on as a therapist when I was just training, you really are doing a lot of thinking. You just think, uh, I know that sounds bad to think, and now I'm saying I don't think, but by that I mean that it was really uh, calculated and almost robotic in a way. Okay, the client said this, what am I supposed to say now? Okay, maybe it's time for a reflection in this way, or maybe I should try this type of intervention. And so it was much more of just, let's say, a, a series of techniques rather than a type of relationship and a dynamic process. I'm exaggerating it to a degree. It wasn't just that, but it did include more of that. And over time, it shifted to actually something that I thought was quite fascinating that in the book, Dr. Epstein talks about when we discuss meditation, usually, of course, we think of it as such a solitary activity. And really, it is in the way we tend to think of it. But he made a comparison that what if we look at therapy as a two-person meditation, which I thought was quite interesting. And that, of course, the therapist is important for them to be very mindful. I might touch on this at the end of today's show about paying attention and what really it looks like, but that what is being experienced is that both client and therapist together in the room or in the Zoom with the, the telehealth that we're practicing more now are sharing in this meditative practice including the non-judgmental awareness of noticing what is coming up, but not necessarily judging it or pushing it one way or the other, but that noticing. So I thought that was a really fascinating concept that therapy can be like a two-person meditation. And I think when you feel very much in a flow with a client, it does feel that way, that there is this sense of becoming one in a way in the way you're processing things or connecting but also that you're just noticing things together. And I think it's very important for the therapist to help create that type of a environment for the client. Now, he also mentions different teachers or people that he was influenced by or different writers, also non-Buddhist ones like um, Winnicott, who I am a big fan of. Um, he also mentions the Dalai Lama and something about the Dalai Lama that was also in the book about attunement that I shared a few weeks ago. And I think it's very important as, as human beings, but especially as a therapist, that when the Dalai Lama listens to someone or speaks with someone, the way he listens, no matter who's talking and what they're talking about, 
is like what they're saying and who they are is the most important thing and they are the most important person in the world. So giving that type of reverence, that type of attention to the person they are communicating with. And I'm always moved when I hear something like that. I've heard it about the Dalai Lama, about Abdu'l-Baha, and about uh, um, other people as well, this type of a being with others that is taking them in so fully that you are so connected with them and listening with so much love and compassion and attention that the person will feel like they're the most important person, at least for that time they are to you and they should be. That's something that I think we really have lost. In general, people don't do that, but how often are we so distracted when we are communicating or talking with someone? It really is more the norm to be very distracted, let alone to give them that full undivided attention with that kind of compassion and love. And so actually, I I tried to keep this uh, in mind in general, but also especially when I'm working with clients that when you are listening to them, you want to give them that level of importance, that amount of being seen and attended to. So I I found it fascinating as he went through these different cases with different clients and shared what he would do. And and I, I always think it's important as you're reading a book, I'm reminded of Eric Fromm's of, you know, to have or to be. And when you're being, when you're reading, it means you are not just passively taking in the book, you are actively engaged. So I found myself hearing, you know, the client say this, and I would wonder, what would I say in that moment? And sometimes it was very different from the direction he went into. And he also does share sometimes he felt, for example, he was giving too much advice to a certain client or coming on too strong in a certain way. So he does share areas where he felt he could have done better or might have been getting lost in in some kind of, let's say, counter-transference or shaped or, or, or pushing in a certain direction. So I thought that was good. Um, you know, a therapist or a psychiatrist like himself who does therapy, who's been practicing for decades, acknowledging areas where he could have done better or might have made some kind of mistake or misstep or could have done it better. Um, but I thought that was quite fascinating. So we see these different lessons throughout the book um, that he goes through with clients. And a lot of it has to do with various Buddhist principles, as I was saying, but it includes a lot of being open and accepting what you're going through and also the type of clinging that we can do. And one of the ways we cling to things is we cling to a certain narrative of our life. You know, we, we make sense as human beings, we're meaning-making machines. You give us a story, even there's this really interesting study where it's basically these shapes that are moving around, but most people, when they watch this uh, diagram, or it's almost like a cartoon of just like a triangle and a circle, they'll say, well, the triangle is chasing the circle, and then finally the circle gets away or whatever it is. But we tell a story because that's what we do. And so when it comes to our life, there's a narrative that we tell ourselves including different characters. Mom was this way. Dad was this way. This person is that way. This part of my life was like this. And we often cling to it because that truth that it feels like it is somehow is giving us some benefits in our life that we like. For example, that we can blame certain people for what we've been through or that we had no other choice but to do this. Or in our past, this person was all good and this other person was all bad. It's a lot easier to sit with that than to recognize maybe they both had good or bad qualities. And so you see him at times challenging uh, 
clients in the ways that they are seeing something. And so this is, I think, one of the arts of therapy is to love and accept the client where they are, but also at the same time, be willing to challenge them so that they can see things differently, so that they actually can look at their own life story in a different way, or recognize that the way that they're viewing this current situation can be seen differently. So we don't want to invalidate their experience, but we do want to add complexity to it or add a dimension to it that they might be missing. And so often we take a lot of pride almost in what we've been through. And I think in therapy, we understand our past, but what we want to do is work through our past to create a better present and future for ourselves. And you see him do that in the book, which I think is interesting because sometimes when we think of loving and compassionate ways of being, we just think, well, wherever someone is, just tell them they're good exactly like they are and keep them there. But if we love someone, we want what is best for them. And often what is best for someone is to challenge them in some way that will help them grow or will help them have a a better type of life or experience. And related to that, even when we think of meditation, I often share this, that when we imagine meditation, people who've done it for a long time, we think of some, you know, Zen master, someone who is so calm and peaceful and always feeling good. And people think that's what meditation is, that when you meditate, you just feel calm all the time or you feel good all the time. But the truth is that when you meditate, what you are doing is you're connecting more with your experience. You are connecting more to feelings and thoughts that are there, but that you might be distracted and not paying attention to, wanting to distract consciously or conscious, unconsciously. But there are things there that you might not be noticing. And so when you meditate, you actually also get in touch with some painful and difficult feelings. When people go on meditation retreats, they'll talk about various things that comes, come up. Sometimes they'll just start crying out of what seems like out of nowhere, but some memory or some feelings are coming up. And so when we become more mindful, it doesn't just mean everything is good and great and we're happy all the time. It just means we're living a more connected life. We're living a more full life and experience. And so when you meditate, you're more fully connected to yourself, but it doesn't mean you're just going to feel good all the time. And I think that's when you look at therapy and consider it as a two-person meditation, it's that same thing. When you're in the room with the client, you aren't just talking about pleasant things all the time and it's all good. It's actually a lot of times the encounters with the painful that make it healing and lead to the growth that you can have. And so we have to be open to that. And so I thought it was interesting take to, again, look at therapy as a two-person meditation, but also something to take into our own lives and our own relationships. Of course, if you have a loved one, you're not going to have a therapy client relationship with them, but that kindness that he was talking about in that relationship that gets formed between the therapist and the client, a lot of that I think is something we can take into all aspects of our life, but into all the relationships we have. How can we be with one another in that meditative state? How can we give someone that full attention with love and kindness, meet them where they are, understand where they are, but see also how we can encourage their growth. And actually it's when we meet them where they are that it's easier for them to grow. Often until someone acknowledges our experience or our pain, it's hard for us to let go of it. Yes, we can do it on our own, but it could be much more helpful when someone 
validates and sits with us through that feeling for us to then move forward. So I think there's a lot of great lessons. I think it's also nice to see the sessions he outlines because things like that tend to demystify therapy. It really is a conversation, yes, unique in certain ways, but not as scary as I think people often think of lying on a couch and being analyzed in a certain way that feels very cold or distant or you're feeling judged in some way. A good therapist likely won't make you feel any of those things. But I'm always happy to see accounts of therapy, one, because I always learn from the therapists, but two, because I think it further makes it that people might feel less afraid if they haven't gone to therapy, that it's not something so scary. So that was The Zen of Therapy by Mark Epstein. Let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So last night, um, there was an incident. If you were watching the Academy Awards, I did not see uh, the Academy Awards, but I think you all know what I'm talking about, um, that there was a, a slap that became, I think, the whole the whole story, but everyone was talking about that. And so um, I wanted to share some thoughts on it. First of all, I also know there are definitely more important things that are going on in the world. And when things like this happen, they become the focus and they can take our attention away from things that are more important, which is essentially, I know what I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm doing that myself, but I just wanted to share some thoughts on it because I think these situations, uh, when you go to social media, instantly you see lots of reactions, people either saying they are on this side or that side, it was totally right, totally wrong, and sharing their thoughts. And of course, social media is notorious for hyperpolarization, making us more extreme in what we think and believe, because what tends to get attention or what does get attention are things that are more extreme. If you share a nuanced response, you're not likely to get much of a reaction from people. But if you say something extreme, you're likely to to get that. And even what we saw that night, uh, last night was extreme reaction as well. So what I wanted to do is share some thoughts. I always think these these types of situations are much more complicated than we might think. And to look at various aspects of it or various issues that I think are related to it. So to begin with, I wanted to give a free uh, a few like precautions. One is I have read some some accounts about how race might be involved or not knowing the uh, cultural impact of what's happening or cultural issues that might be involved in not being a black person myself, I have to recognize that. So I'm aware that there's ways that I'm limited in, in how I can talk about this on top of very importantly that we don't know exactly what happened. So we are judging with parts of the story. We don't know the whole story. And so people will say it was right or it was wrong, but we, we don't know a lot of the factors, what was going on, what happened between the individuals before, during, to know what was exactly happening, to say to say what was going on there. But I did want to share some, some thoughts. So to begin with the joke, now if you didn't hear the joke, uh, Chris Rock made a joke about um, Jada Smith's hair. She um, apparently has alopecia, and she's talked about that publicly. So it, there's a reason why her hair is so short, but Chris Rock made a joke saying, uh, you know, something like, love you, Jada, can't wait for G.I. Jane 2. Um, G.I. Jane was a movie back in, I think it was either the late 90s, or early 2000s with Demi Moore, where she 
I was playing a soldier, I believe, and so she had a shaved head. So I, the reference was that her hair looked like that. Um, so, you know, was it in poor taste? Yes, I, I think so. Um, and it's about someone, a person, bottom, first and foremost. Oftentimes, we will see women's appearance, body, be more objectified in general, but also be more the source of ridicule or being examined in that way and criticized. So there's lots of parts of the joke I don't like, but if we stay with that part of things first, this is what happens in these kinds of shows or when we talk about stand-up comedians and what they do, they, they say far worse things about people. This one, yes, it did include someone's medical issues. So I think that is quite bad. But even still, we hear comedians say horrible things. And this brings up issues related to things like cancel culture, censorship. Should you censor anything? Should you not? Which I also have a nuanced mindset on that in that I don't think it's all or nothing. I don't think, of course, I think cancel culture goes way too far for sure. But do I think that just because something is art that the artist has no responsibility? I don't. Now, this is how I think about it. Art needs to be, there has to be freedom. There needs to be space to explore, try things. That's what art does. It has to push the envelope. It's doing something in a way that hasn't been done before. Whatever the medium is, it has to do that. It has to be able to have that freedom. But that's in the creative process. But then what is then expressed or released to the world, that part I think the artist has to take some consideration of possible impact. You can never know the full impact, but I think you do have to have an awareness or a thought of how this can impact people. It doesn't mean if it makes people uncomfortable you don't release it, because actually oftentimes art does a very good job of making us realize that something is not right by making us feel uncomfortable. So this is where I'm saying that cancel culture can go too far or that mindset that if anyone didn't like it anywhere, it was bad and wrong, or if anyone was offended by it, that it's bad or wrong. But there is still areas where art can go too far, whatever it is. Even what I'm doing right now can be considered art in a way, doing some kind of public speaking or speaking on the air. It could be considered an art, but I do have a responsibility of what I'm saying. And I have to take that responsibility. So to me, the creative process should be uncensored in that what are people doing on their own? But when you release something and put it out there, it's a little bit different. And then here's where we get to another gray area, because at times you have improvisational art where someone is creating in the moment. And in that case, well, I do think you have to be more generous in the sense that the person might try something. They take a risk. We want them to take risks. And so when you take a risk, of course, sometimes you can just get it wrong in multiple ways. It just might not be good. That's maybe less more a more benign way of being wrong or getting it wrong. But you could also do something offensive or something that you recognize is not good, and that could be worse. So I do think in this case also there was, it seems like, an improvisational nature to it. I still don't think it was okay. I don't like the joke. Um, but that is also an aspect of, of what's going on there. So... To me, I didn't like the joke. I don't think that's right to go there. But I definitely don't think the violence was the answer or is okay either. Now, another thing before I move on to that side of things. When we talk about dehumanization, usually the more nefarious, the darker side, 
which I think is, is more harmful for sure, is the ways we dehumanize certain groups or individuals to see them as less than human, which then also makes us feel more comfortable with either treating them poorly or if they're being treated poorly or to commit genocide in extreme cases, whatever it might be. I saw a documentary last night in homelessness, about homelessness, um, and it was heartbreaking, but that's definitely a population that gets dehumanized around the world, definitely here in the United States, individuals who are experiencing homelessness. And so seeing these individuals and seeing their humanity and seeing that they were just human beings like anyone going through a difficult time and they were needing support and love and resources and they're not different from anyone who's listening, including me, well, that can be important for us to look at, but it's a lot easier for people to think of someone as less than. And so some somehow they deserve what they're going through. Sometimes, of course, people even say they want to have that condition, but that's very much not the case for the overwhelming majority of people experiencing homelessness in the United States. So it's easier for us to dehumanize them because it makes us feel more okay with the situation, but the reality is they are human just like anyone else. So that's really the dark side. There's also what we can call the upside, it's in quotes because it's not really good in the long run, where we elevate people above everyone else. And that's something we do with celebrities. We you know, praise them in certain ways, they get attention. If they commit a crime, even oftentimes they don't get punished in the same way. There's ways they usually get out of it or around it. Of course, that's also related to wealth. But there's just ways that people who are celebrities don't have to live the way that everyone else does. They are put on a pedestal. So we dehumanize bringing down, but we also dehumanize by elevating. And now, of course, I wouldn't say this is equal to being dehumanized by by being put down. And most people will say, well, I don't mind that if there's anything negative about it. But I think when we look at it as a society, there is a problem. Because when we put someone on a pedestal, yes, we praise them, elevate them, we're obsessed with them, we, you know, they make lots of money, lots of attention, all these types of things that people tend to want. But we also don't see them as human anymore. And so if we want to make fun of them, put them down, and degrade them even, people who would never do that to someone who they saw as equal to them, feel very comfortable doing so. And so it could be you know, parts of our own envy or we feel angry at them. It could be lots of things, but there's just a way that when we make people into gods, when we no longer see them as humans, we don't have to treat them like humans, whether it's we make them worse, which definitely is worse, or if we make them better, we no longer think of them as human in the same way. We can gossip about them and we wouldn't think about it. We can make fun of them. We can do whatever it is. And so I think that's also something we see in this scenario, this bigger issue of the ways that we can treat people who are in the limelight is different than how we would treat other people. And so Chris Rock is someone who's made a lot of money and fame by making fun of lots of people. And so, well, this is again a gray area. When is it okay? When is it not? So just to make sure I talk about the other aspect, of course, which is probably even bigger in a lot of ways, we see... Will Smith's reaction of of violence, which to me is not going to be the answer to to answer in that way. Do I think the joke was wrong making fun of your loved one? Of course, you're going to have feelings. 
These things are complicated. Yes, you can see a video, and at first it seems like he's kind of laughing, and she's rolling her eyes. She's clearly not happy about the joke. Then the camera cuts away, so we don't know what was going on between them. And then he, you know, walks on stage, and we're not sure. Of course, now we've seen it, but we weren't sure what was going to happen. And then, you know, he strikes Chris Rock across the face. So we don't know exactly what happened in that interaction, but do I think that was the way to deal with it? No. You didn't like something that someone said. I think there's always going to be a different way to deal with it than to resort to violence. And I'm actually happy to see that um, Will Smith himself has released an apology that, you know, those were not the actions he would want to take, apologizing directly to Chris Rock and also to everyone about that, that he, you know, his emotions got the better of him, so to speak. And so you've probably seen people throw around the phrase toxic masculinity about this case, but in general. And oftentimes these types of concepts start to lose their value because unfortunately people just throw it around a lot that everything is toxic masculinity, you know, just like people will use other words in the same way. Privilege, for example. Oh, that's privilege. And I think privilege is definitely a real thing and we want to look at it. But unfortunately, people can throw it around in a way that makes it lose its value. But toxic masculinity and even the phrasing of it, I think, makes rubs people the wrong way. Um, but there is definitely this aspect to the way we look at being a man. That is that if something happens or let's say the honor of your woman, you have to stick up for them and do whatever it takes. And it doesn't matter. And that makes you more of a man. Well, you know, I think there's something about protecting the honor of each other. But there's also something that's being said that the woman can't take care of herself, that they wouldn't be able to stand up for themselves in some way. We don't know what was going on between them, but that's definitely um, a concept that's relevant to what happened here. And, you know, in his acceptance speech, he said, love makes you do crazy things, which, yes, in the sense that when we're talking about our romantic relationships, they tend to bring up our most intense feelings because they bring up attachment feelings. And so people will often say, I feel like I'm a very quote unquote, rational, calm person in general. Then when I'm in a romantic relationship, I kind of feel crazy. I feel like um, more irrational or more emotional and surprise myself with some of the things I think or I do or I feel that it's very different. And so, so there is some truth to that. But the dangerous part there is that Often people will say things like that, you know, love makes you do crazy things when they do bad things, when they're violent even towards their partner or when they act out in certain ways. And so we have to be careful not to use that as an excuse. Again, in this case, he did apologize afterwards to the person that he, he hurt, but it's something that I think we have to be careful about because I've also heard people say things like, you know, it's not real love unless it makes you do crazy things. So unless you do those really toxic things, hurting each other, even disrespecting the other person, getting violent, damaging property, you know, sometimes people think that means it's real love because look how much it's making the person feel. And unfortunately, people who have grown up in a violent family, whether the violence was towards them or their parents were violent to one another, or they saw a lot of violence mixed with love, they do start to think that, well, if someone is not going to that extreme, how do I know they love me? And they unfortunately entangle those two things. Oh, that was an interesting choice of words. Maybe some people got that. But anyway, um, 
Uh, I really didn't mean to say that, but that was interesting how that came out. But there is a way that love and violence or being hurt can become um, considered one and the same. And so someone might not recognize or they might actually see something good in that. So that's something concerning in that aspect of it, that love makes you do crazy things that I also think is is unfortunate that people might get that message that reinforces the idea that love should look like that. And that is not what it should look like. So again, even as I'm talking about these things, it's incomplete information. We are even judging myself. I'm doing it, I understand. But at most, it's actions, not people. It's behaviors that took place. It's also in a very strange type of a situation on live TV, which somehow makes it worse in a way, but also makes things different. And we never know what we would do if we were in a certain situation. But since it was so much on people's minds, I thought I would share some thoughts, hopefully adding to the conversation, some of the nuance of different facets of what's going on. And some of my thoughts, especially about dehumanization, which I think is unfortunate. Can we make people no longer famous? No. I think we can be aware of how we treat individuals. Putting them on the pedestal is also part of the problem, but then what happens when they're there is an issue as well. And violence, I think, is not the answer in almost any case to outwardly be violent. Yes, protecting is different than, I think, what was going on here. Uh, Just some thoughts on that issue. But let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So for the last segment today, I wanted to talk about listening, which relates to the the book of the week that I was talking about, The Zen of Therapy, where uh, Mark Epstein talked about therapy, how it could be seen as a two-person meditation, which I thought was quite interesting. And so I I think what made me think about this issue of, of how Uh, we are in therapy is thinking about how different it is from normal conversations that we tend to have. And as I mentioned, it doesn't mean therapy is this weird thing, but there is something valuable of having someone paying very close attention to us, of giving us undivided attention and with some level of, of warmth and kindness that makes us feel accepted and comfortable to then explore who we are more deeply. And we won't have these kinds of conversations regularly outside of the therapy room. So I I don't want to, in this segment, I'm going to talk about listening and some thoughts about it, but I don't want to give this uh, false idea that we should expect this in every moment that we're going to be so purely paying attention to one another because it's not always going to be possible. But I do think we have gotten even worse at it. Um, but always there has been a tendency not to listen fully to one another and really think about what that means. So I really admire, as I mentioned, people who pay attention when they're talking to someone in a certain way. Um, and I try to do that, but I'm definitely guilty of it too. I, I get distracted or sometimes I'm talking to someone. And of course, usually it's people we're closer to. We might feel more comfortable checking our phone or texting while they're saying something to us. And so we tend to think, of course, we are doing something harmful to them when we're not listening. We should think of that as, uh, you know, this is not kind to them and we often do apologize or they might bring it to our attention. But what I was thinking about today was how when we think about not paying attention, what we think we're missing or sometimes the only thing we think we're missing is what the person is saying. And so I, I know people 
maybe you are one of these people who you might talk to them and if they're distracted, they'll say, oh, no, no, I'm still hearing what you're saying. You know, uh, a certain friend of mine comes to mind and he actually is quite good. I think he's one of those people that often needs a little bit of distraction to pay attention. Um, but he re- will hear what you're saying, even if he's partially doing something else. Now, this is not about him because this part is not going to be about him anymore. But in general, though, what is also being missed, because when someone is talking to us, it's not just the words. So if someone tells you a story or something they went through, the content can be important, of course, like the words, this happened and this happened and this happened. But really, when we're fully listening to someone, it's not just about the words they are saying, we're also paying attention to the feelings, the nonverbal cues, the the change in the tone of voice, the look on their face, various features that make it more complete. Think about a story that's very meaningful to you. It's not just about what happened. If it's very meaningful to you, it impacted you in ways. There's feelings. There could be good and bad. There can be a you know, a challenge and something that was overcome, or there could be pain, or there can be happiness, pride, all sorts of things. So the content of the story alone is not what we're conveying to someone when we're talking. And of course, here, I'm not just, when I say listening, it's not just about a story, but it's about someone's story as far as their experience and who they are and what they're going through. So first of all, as the listener, you're going to miss a lot if you're not paying attention. But the part that struck me today was that if we're not listening completely or if we're not fully present or as present as we can be, we're also going to miss our own feelings about what's going on. And so when I was thinking of um, you know, therapy as a two-person meditation, and really as a therapist, what you do, you listen to the client, but you also are listening to yourself. This is what attunement does, is that we we pay attention to the person. We also pay attention to what is it bringing up for me? Okay, as you said, this part, I felt myself get sad. And then this is where it gets even deeper because my sadness can be about what you're saying, but also could be something that's triggering in me that's more about me than you. And it gets very, very blurry where these lines um, are, where one thing begins and the other one ends. It could be that I'm relating it to it because it's something I went through, So it's not about me, it's really about us, but I have to really try to tease that apart that maybe it's something unresolved I have that's being being triggered. But so what struck me was how much we think about listening is just, what am I getting from you? Am I getting everything? Okay, I got everything, we're good. But if I'm not paying attention, if I'm checking my phone, if I'm looking around, or if I'm thinking about something else, I'm also gonna be missing my own feelings and reactions about what you are sharing. And so when I'm not listening, I'm less there too. And so there's less in the interaction. There's not two full people engaging and interacting. There's one person, let's say, if they're fully engaged in sharing what they are, and the other person half there and half not there. So you have one and a half people rather than two full interconnected individuals in that experience. So don't just think about what you're missing in what the person is saying, miss, uh, pay attention also to what you are missing with what's happening inside of you, what's happening within you in that interaction. And so I work with lots of couples and this comes up, it's almost in every relationship now with screens being such a big part of our lives, our phones being there and this feeling of, I need to check something. Or if you get an alert 
or a notification feeling like you have to check it in that moment. Even we know that if your phone is visible, it's distracting. So they've done research that even if your phone is off and face down, just the fact that you see your phone can make you tempted to want to check it, which makes you a little bit less attentive to whatever it is that you're doing. So it's quite fascinating. I was wondering if they're going to do this type of research on things like Apple watches. So you always have it visible. It's always there. Um, is that even worse? So fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not sponsored by, by Apple probably won't happen anytime soon, but I don't know if having even a watch that is giving you notifications or you could check it for notifications will be distracting because it's always that specter is there that you can check something. So when I work with couples very often, this does come up that one of the partners or both will feel like, oh, you know, my partner's on their screen too much, on their phone too much. And so I want to have a conversation with them and they're checking something. And it's a cliche type of thing of putting your phone away or, you know, turning it off or doing something, putting the notifications off. But it is really valuable to recognize that we want to remove the distractions as much as we can. And so if you're talking to your partner, but your phone is there and you're checking something, you might be getting 30% of it, both 30% of what they're saying and of your own experience. And so the interaction is going to be worth a lot less. And so when we look at quality time, quality connection, you see that many couples almost never or have very few moments where they're having a face-to-face, eye-to-eye conversation. They might even go days and weeks without looking at each other while they're talking. Some people are more comfortable with this and some people are not. Sometimes you'll see people talk about differences between men and women and there could be some differences, but everyone has the capacity for this type of conversation and communication and creating an emotionally intimate relationship tends to require some level of this type of connection and communication where you try to shut everything out and pay attention to one another. And yes, of course, life is very busy. And if you have kids, it's even more busy. And there's people literally interrupting your quality time at times. So it can be challenging to to find that time to do it. But I really encourage you to do so. Something I do often with clients is to have them schedule a weekly check-in where they're just going to have 30 minutes set aside every week, non-negotiable. So it's like a meeting where you just check in about the relationship. How are you doing? How are you feeling? Are you feeling connected, disconnected from each other? Is there any issue that's been coming up that you haven't talked about? And just doing that type of a check-in on the relationship and how things are going. But my hope is that it's not just that 30 minutes a week where you have that type of open conversation where you're connected and, and paying close attention to one another. Hopefully that's something that you try to put in at least small pockets here and there because it really is very valuable to maintaining a connection to create even more closeness with one another. And some people can't even tolerate a small amount of that. Another thing I at times will ask clients to do, couples, is to stare at each other without talking for a few minutes. Usually not in the session. It can feel even weirder. Someone staring at you, people can feel awkward enough. Someone staring at you, stare at each other. So 
I'll have them do it alone and some people can't even do it. And sometimes they'll say, oh, we laughed or even sometimes they we touched or even I've heard people say they've kissed or made love, you know, and they think it's because they're so attracted to one another. But really what it is usually telling us is that there's some issue in the emotional intimacy or feeling comfortable with that space of just being together, of just looking at each other's eyes without any kind of distraction, any kind of uh, uh, verbal communication, any kind of looking away, just being together. And so when we think of therapy, as Mark Epstein talks about in this book, as a two-person meditation, can we have those types of moments of attunement where it's like you are a two-person meditation together, connecting and communicating with one another? The hard part it is, well, there's a few hard parts. One is it's hard to do this for many people. They get uncomfortable. It, it takes some effort and it's not easy. Just like meditation, although it sounds like you're doing nothing, and often that's how people hear it, just sitting and trying to do nothing, it can be very challenging to do because we avoid our feelings or we want to avoid them and we don't want to sit with our thoughts and feelings, so we'd rather distract ourselves. And so it can be very hard. So the first part is it's hard to, to do it, to just allow ourselves to have that capacity to make that happen. The other hard part is that both people have to want it. And unfortunately, you can be in a relationship with someone who doesn't want this kind of intimacy. Usually they'll make excuses, oh, this is stupid, um, this is boring, or we don't need to do this, or if it's a, a man might not feel comfortable, oh, this is like, you know, not Amanda can't do these things or a man shouldn't do these things. And this relates to toxic masculinity talked about in the last segment. But there could be reasons why someone doesn't want to do it and you can't force them. You can definitely ask. You can share why it's important for you, why you think it's important for the relationship. But the hard part is if, if both people don't want to do it, there's only so much you can do, which goes back to just even how you communicated having these types of communications where you are both open is that both people have to want to do it. You can't force your partner to pay attention to you. And if you feel like you do have to force your partner to pay attention, you get to that point. That's something very serious for you to consider. A big part of a relationship is being together, being connected, paying attention to one another and wanting to do that. If you're with someone that doesn't do that and you want that, that is a very, very important characteristic to consider. Not everyone has the same desire for closeness and for intimacy. And so it's important for you to think about who is this person that I'm with and how are they making me feel and how open are they to us being that close. But I'll conclude again on this point that when we don't pay attention to our partner and we don't bring our full attention to what someone is telling us, not only do we miss out on a lot of what they are saying, but we miss out on a lot of what we are saying internally, what we are feeling and thinking which takes away from the quality and the intimacy of the connection of the relationship. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.